This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hi, welcome to the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth, and as we turn the calendar over to a new month, we'll be assessing why it's been a pretty awful October for equities. Joining me on the show to discuss all the market news is Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny. Hi, Dan. Hi, everyone. Earnings updates have been coming in thick and fast, with some like McDonald's and Coca-Cola beating expectations and others like BP a bit disappointing. We'll also focus in on some big UK retailers as we hurtle towards Christmas. Once again, next shines. But online retailer ASOS is still in the weeds. There's a lot of speculation it might be planning to sell Topshop. And Fraser's has completed the deal to sell Misguided to Sheen, which could be the start of an interesting relationship. Now, sticking with the retail sector, the buy now, pay later concept has boomed, but there's now warnings that this facility could be sending thousands of people into a spiral of debt. Now, understandably, there's calls for planned regulation of the sector to be sped up. Now, also on the podcast, we're going to be talking about the big jump in company insolvencies and talking about the rumours that WeWork could be about to file for bankruptcy. And investors are always on the lookout for fund managers who can outperform. We're joined this week by one person who smashed it out of the park. James Rutland will be on the show to explain how he's managed to deliver more than twice the IA Europe sector over the past three years with the Invesco European Focus Fund. So lots of really important news stories to get through this week. I also think it's important that we point out that we are recording this on Wednesday lunchtime. So that's before decisions from the Fed and the Bank of England on the latest interest rates. But market expectation was that those rates would be held by both of those central banks. Now, the uncertainty around the sort of trajectory of rates is still giving investors pause. And we're going to be talking about how poorly equities have performed over the last month a bit later on but let's start with a bit of good news and we've had some big global brands reporting some expectation beating results so what have we got Danny? Well let's start with McDonald's the golden arches. Um, We've spoken before about the fact that McDonald's being sort of a value operator at the value end of the hospitality sector tends to do quite well when you have an economy that is really struggling. And that is something that the CEO of McDonald's, Chris Kempzinski, has been talking about on the latest earnings call because, yeah, I mean, McDonald's has done incredibly well. Its third quarter revenues and profits went up. It's been able to put prices up, but... It is now talking about sort of halting that because it has seen an impact. And although you've got this really interesting mix, so you've got people with a bit more money trading down because they still want to be able to eat out. You've also got um, people who are on less money, not able to spend as much in stores. So traffic fell slightly. Um, It saw fewer visits from customers with annual incomes of $45,000 or less. They're clearly very focused in on their consumer. They are watching every 
customer interaction like an absolute hawk. And it's why it's putting the brakes on on higher prices and focusing in on value meals, which is something that McDonald's can do quite well. There was um, a number out from the Big Mac Index by The Economist, which has looked at the price of a McDonald's staple, the Big Mac, of course, up 125% since 1996. And in the last two years, Dan, how much do you reckon it's gone up by? Oh, I, I, I don't know. Lots. <laughs> 6% in just two years. Okay. And it it maybe doesn't sound like quite that much when you consider where inflation has been, but also when you consider how much it's gone up by since 1996, that is quite chunky. It's really quite a peculiar situation that we find ourselves in because although people are now inflation-weary, a lot of those pandemic savings have been eroded and prices are still rising. They're just not rising quite as fast. People are prepared to pay a bit more for certain things. So we also had Coca-Cola numbers out as well, beating expectations in the third financial quarter. And people prepared to pay that bit extra for that can of Coke or, or other soft drink that Coke creates because they like it, because it is seen as an affordable treat. But again, it's really interesting here that Coke is saying that it intends to sort of cool price rises. It, it's not looking to do that going forward because it wants to retain widespread consumer interest in its products. But all in all, uh, for investors, these were pretty crowd-pleasing results. On on that point, though, you know, people paying whatever the kind of being charged for Coca-Cola products generally, you know, the, the alternative is supermarket products. But I think something like Coke, they just, just don't taste anywhere near as good. So while some some sort of brands are worried that, um, you know, it's easy to, to switch down to something else uh, from a supermarket, Coke must have that in his back pocket saying, you know, at least we, we always have an advantage on the taste sort of test. There's a certain taste, isn't there? And some people prefer Pepsi, some people prefer Coke, some people prefer, prefer Pepsi Max to, you know, the full sugar variety. But I think if you've got a soft drink that you like, that is the one that you stick with. And while, you know, things like washing up liquid and laundry detergent and that kind of stuff, where you can probably just you know, maybe it smells a bit different, maybe it doesn't feel quite the same, but honestly, it, it's not that much of an issue to trade down. Whereas if you want a Coke, you want a Coke. <laughs> Coca-Cola, we should say, emphasise. <laughs> we should do. Um, it's not all been crowd-pleasing stuff uh, like Coca-Cola. Um, I think it's worth picking out BP, Dan. Definitely. There was a big drop in its third quarter profits. Now that was down to its gas trading arm. So high high sort of gas storage levels in, in the US and Europe had reduced price volatility compared to the first half of the year. So essentially BP was saying that there was limited trading opportunities there. But um, to, to me, what's quite interesting is, you know, that well, the, the market reaction was very negative to this, but it's also stirred the pot a bit again about could BP be a takeover target? Because if you think that it's lacking a permanent chief executive at the moment, because Bernard Looney recently resigned after admitting he failed to sort of 
disclose the extent of past personal relationships with colleagues. So I think when when you've got a business like that, that um, it's kind of only got an interim caretaker, you will have other people going, oh, you know, is, you know, is this the opportune moment? There's also the fact it's it's kind of strategy is a bit muddled. You know, one minute it's sort of saying, yeah, we're going to call, you know, um, a future's all going to be in renewables. And then it's like, well, hang on a minute, you know, are you now just doing more with oil and gas? So I, I think it's sort of, it's, it's in a, in a very interesting situation. And you, you, you can just see it. There are deals being made in this sector. So Exxon spending 60 billion on buying Pioneer Natural Resources, Chevron spending 53 billion on buying Hess. You know, these companies are sort of looking to gain scale. And can you just imagine, you know, if you owned BP, you know, that's an easy way to gain scale. But also I can see the headlines, you know, foreign companies is, is stealing all the UK's crown jewels. And can you just imagine that uh, the uproar if someone tried, you know, foreign company tried to buy BP? Uh, and I, I don't think the government really would let that slide easily. Do you think there's any sort of possibility of it being snapped up because i know that its shares fell when chevron announced the acquisition of hess because a lot of people thought that maybe that would be a good fit um you know chevron taking over bp do you think that there could be another deal or do you think bp is too muddled at the moment as you say well no i mean you've got uh, the fact is for for a very long time if you look at uk uh, and some European oil producers look at look at you know, the valuations that they trade on the stock market are, are much lower than the US. So if you had a you know if you say, for example if you had a, an American firm looking to to, to become a bigger player, um, you, you've got you know, an opportunity to buy a company. Yes, it looks muddled, but I mean someone with a clearer strategy might be able to you know extract some good value from it there, and you know it's on a cheap valuation as well. But it's just one of those, just one of those names that it would, it would create all kind of fuss and bother from you know in political circles um, and, and and on a wider basis whether you know could, should we really be letting someone take away you know the, the British PLC effectively uh, you know when you got these huge names so um, I, I, I would not rule it out no definitely would not rule it out. And the new CEO very much has said, look, you know, I, I know I'm caretaker, but we are going to focus in more on oil and gas. We're going to reduce spending on offshore wind because really seen the direction of travel and, and we'll be getting a lot of pressure from investors to capitalize on the way things are at the moment. Yeah. So I think let's 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 turn to the retail sector. Um, there's lots of companies being sort of updating on what they're doing at the moment. And kind of, you know, again, it's a, a sort of a mixed stories. So we've got Christmas adverts is always the, the, the sort of the, the trigger. So Danny, tell, please tell me they haven't started yet. They have started. <laughs> yes. The Marks and Sparks one has landed. It's, it, I liked it. Yeah. It's got, it's quite quirky. Um, it, it's, um, it's basically about this Christmas do what you want. Don't do all the things that you're expected to do. If you don't like playing games, don't play games. If you don't like, you know, the naughty elf on the shelf, don't bother with that. Have the Christmas that you want. And it, it's the first big UK Christmas advert to um, hit our screens. Uh, John Lewis is is on its way. We understand it won't be long, will it? And, and it really does sort of mark Christmas. And 
the weather has been playing ball now because it, it kind of feels wintry. The clocks have gone back. It's been raining and cold. But while we're talking about retail and we're talking about the weather, let's talk about next because it's done it again. I mean, I think, you know, we're kind of getting to a point where we're expecting it to <laughs> to beat expectations, you know, to, to promise a little and deliver a lot. And for the fourth time in six months, it has boosted its full year profit forecast. Now, it's it's done really well when you look at the quarter overall. So um, the sales climbed 4%, which was above analyst forecasts of 2%. That's between August and October. But when you drill down, it was impacted by the weather. So you saw over the summer people not wanting to buy T-shirts and things like that because it was just too cold. And then we had that sort of unseasonable warm spell in September where it was just too warm to buy a winter coat. So it's had to contend with that. And I think it just demonstrates the strength of the retailer that it's been able to deal with all of that, which have impacted other retailers considerably. We've heard all sorts from different retailers like H&M about the impact on sales of the weather. And in fact, retail sales figures overall, when we hear that they've fallen or they've increased, we're often hearing now that it is connected with the weather. But the fact that it is still managing to deliver despite the volatility um, is is just, yeah, as I say, testament to the business itself. It's not the same for ASOS, though. No. I mean, this company is in a mess, to put it mildly. It's just reported its four-year results. Sales down, net debts ballooned, pre-tax losses, uh, pre-tax losses much, much worse than you can know, just imagine. Uh, and and you know, to make matters worse, it's kind of saying that profitability in the new financial year is going to be negatively affected by ongoing sort of efforts to try and clear XX stock. So you've got guidance for sales to fall by as much as 15%. I mean, it, it, it's just going to be, um, I guess you could, you could call it another transitional year for the business. But essentially, you've got a, a company here that was doing incredibly well, um, Come here comes the pandemic. You know, everyone's sport at home, ordering clothes. Everything seems to be going fine. But then, since then, you've had the cost of living crisis. People's shopping habits have changed. Names like Sheen have come along with cheaper alternatives. Um, inflationary pressures. Their cost structure's gone up for ASOS, and so everything's sort of kind of fallen apart. So, what was a sort of a, a chase growth at any price business model no longer works. So they're now trying to shift that to be focus on much more sort of profitable sales. It's going to take some time for that to, to happen. Um, now there is this speculation it might sell the Topshop brand and it certainly needs to, um, you know, certainly could do with a, a, a lump of cash to help pay down what is now quite sort of worrying levels of debt. But, uh, you know, in the results, there's no, no comment from the company at all. Um, so maybe they're still trying to work on something in the background or, or the press reports are all incorrect, but, um, but yeah, poor old ASOS is in the muddle, but of course, on, on the subject of competition from Sheen, we've now got Fraser's doing a deal to sell misguided to Sheen. I mean, I, I mean, Danny, as a, as a sort of a, a parent to two um, two teenagers, misguided is that a popular name amongst the the youths of today? 
No, my two don't um, tend to shop at Misguided. We do get an awful lot of Sheen parcels in. So uh, I think Misguided tends to be slightly older. Um, Certainly when I've taken a look at the website, I'm sort of really glad they don't shop because I'd be sort of saying you're not going out dressed like that. But but there we go. Um, I think for me the fascinating bit is how Fraser's is now going to work with Sheen, because one of the issues that I had is, you know, sending stuff back. Now, Sheen have got much better at enabling you to send stuff back. So you don't have to send it all the way to Hong Kong as you do with some similar companies. You can now send it to a location in the UK. And I'm guessing that whatever's going on in the back room as part of this deal with Fraser's is likely to make that even more efficient. Yeah, I mean, you had to I, I was surprised that there wasn't much information about how they were going to work with Sheen going forward, apart from that, there was, that they're in talks. Because if you look at the US, there's a sort of the operator of Forever 21. Uh, they, they've they been already struck a deal. And we've talked about this on the on the podcast um, I think probably, you know, maybe a month ago. Um, to, to, so you've got Forever 21 products are being sold on Sheen's platform. Clearly, that's what you, know, you would have thought Phrases wants to do as well. But um but yeah, I think it's yeah, it's certainly an area to watch for that one. You know, Sheen's obviously now got um, a footprint in the UK via Misguided. Obviously, it was already selling into this country, but um, it obviously wants to do more, um, plant more flags in different territories. So um, yeah, definitely, definitely one to watch. But I mean, on the subject of sort of popularity of buying things online, we have had some. Um, sort of concerns about buy now, pay later. There's new figures that's showing it's so popular, isn't it? It's just too easy. I mean, do, do you buy lots of stuff online? I, I buy things online. I've never used buy now, pay later, but it's in your, you know, when you're, when you're making that transaction, it's very clear. It's like, you know, trying to lure you in. Um, and, and it's a bit worrying, isn't it? That lots of people just being presented with this opportunity to, to buy and, you know, don't worry about it later. What does that? What you know doesn't really put people into a good sort of uh, habit. If this, if they're particularly if they're young and this is like the, this is their first experience of sort of perhaps using credit, um, it's just it too, easy too easy to do. Yeah, it is. It's way too easy. And I've actually just used it for the first time. Um, my daughter wanted to buy herself a new phone for her birthday, so she got some birthday cash, and we've got six months interest-free, and I will make sure that that is cleared off by the end of that six months. But it would be so easy to then have to start paying little bits off, and so many people are using it. And there have been some really worrying figures out about how it's sort of pulling people into a debt spiral. There's, I mean, there's 14 million adults used it over the six months to January 2023. So that's about 27% of the UK adult population. What's interesting, if you go back the previous 12-month period, the figure was only 17% of UK adults using it. So um, I think clearly that demonstrates the the, the fast growth in popularity. Um, But what the, the, you know, what these new figures also show is that more than a quarter of people using buy now, pay later, had missed a payment of a bill or a credit commitment 
in three of the last six months. Now that compares with just 6% of people who aren't using buy now, pay later. So I think we can draw some, some conclusions from that, that, um, that, that something needs to change. Now there's been lots of talk about regulating this, this activity. Clearly that needs to be accelerated you you've got potentially young people here who think it's perfectly fine to buy you know kind of whatever they want and worry about the the money later now that is definitely developing bad habits of course there's the dangers of things like late fees potential impact on credit scores if they don't pay it back the temptation to keep buying i mean i guess the worst case scenario you developing an addiction to to spending so i think all all in all here um you know, these these are to, to me they're worrying figures, um, and you know they did get a lot of publicity when the when the numbers came out, and so hopefully we'll see uh, you know for once it, people are uh, widespread calls for this to be properly regulated. Because it's hard when you've got a cost of living crisis, particularly I'm thinking now we're coming up to Christmas. There's pressure on parents to buy for their kids to have all the stuff in the stocking that their kids want. And when you get to that checkout, when you get to your shopping basket, it's the first thing that comes up. And because of that, the temptation is there. So even if you're thinking, I can't actually afford to do this, you're thinking, well, I can't afford to do this if I spread it over three months. But then what happens when the other bills start to come in in January? You're you're absolutely right. It it is something that does need to be looked at. And you mentioned earlier about uh, interest rates. We are expecting decisions, as you say, from the Fed and the Bank of England. Markets expecting them to remain where they are. But those high rates and the uncertainty about what happens next, when they're going to start to come back, aren't just impacting the consumer. Investors are also unsettled, and it's had a huge impact on equities in October. It has been a really miserable month if you've been invested in the stock market. Um, the FTSE T50, which is like an index of um, medium-sized companies on the UK stock market, that was down 7% in a month. FTSE 100, down 4%. Um, and even in, in the US, which you know, lots of people think that the US is untouchable and that's where you make the big money, NASDAQ was down 3% and the S&P 500 was down 2%. Of course, we've got this, there's several factors driving these, these declines in, in equity valuations. Yes, the prospect of interest rates staying higher for longer is continues to trouble investors. We've also had the violence in the Middle East and some real mixed updates from companies. I mean, you, you, you've had some really big names during the month who've seen massive share price falls. Tesla's down was down 20%. Whirlpool was down 22%. Um, Hasbro down by a third. And of course, what this means is if you if you then sort of calibrate where are we year to date in terms of the, sort of the major stock market indices, um, Chinese shares have been particularly weak. So things like Hang Seng in Hong Kong is down 14%. The FTSE 100 is now down on the year, down 2%. Um, but you still have pockets of um, positivity. So the DAX is up 7%, and that's the, the German index. Um, and in the US, the NASDAQ, I mean, it had such a, such a very strong start to the year. It's still up by 23%. But I think what this does mean is if you look at your portfolio, there's definitely going to be pockets if uh, of, of areas I would have thought that aren't doing very well. And I certainly know when I look at my own pension and my own ISA, 
Um, you know, I've got a diversified portfolio, but there's loads in there which is just just really struggling. Um, and it, and I think it's it's easy to get frustrated by what's going on, but I think it's very important as well to think that when you've got market weakness, you can actually buy more of what you'd like at a cheaper price. Because the big unknown is when will markets sort of start to improve. Um, but I think as long as you've got a diversified portfolio, accept that things don't all go up at once. There will be pockets that aren't going to do well at certain times. Th- then the best thing to do is to ride out these sort of um, you know, troubled periods because you know, history suggests they do come um, and they do come quite regularly. So d- don't don't be put off investing by what you've seen in in August. And just we, we're going to talk about the banks in a second, but I just thought it's re- worth flagging um, that one of the one of the stocks that did the worst among um, on the UK was NatWest in October, down by more than twenty percent. So um, its third quarter earnings were below expectations. It's cut its guidance for lending margins. Um, and also had this report into its treatment of Nigel Farage, which you know, sort of showed shortcomings in how the, the situation was dealt with. So, um, But interestingly, I got a research note from a broker which said, you know, actually the investment case has changed for NatWest. It's now saying uh, it's going to have lower capital return expectations. And so I guess this is the, the final thing to think about. If you go through a period and you see big falls in share prices, do look at the companies that you hold and say, has something changed to really warrant this? You know, if the investment case has changed, perhaps you do need to think, well, should that remain in my portfolio or not? But um, anyway, no, so so on, you know, keep sticking with the banks then, Danny, there's been quite a bit of news, isn't there, about um, mortgages and, and sort of savings rates being scrutinized. So what, what sort of caught your eye? Yes, yeah, so we've had um, the chair of a group of MPs, the Treasury Committee. So this is Harriet Baldwin. Um, And she's been incredibly critical of the big four banks, despite, as you say, um, you know, some some disappointing numbers from the likes of NatWest. Um, All four of the big banking giants said that higher borrowing costs had helped them generate more income from mortgages and loans throughout the year. And yet Harriet Baldwin is still saying that they are doing as little as they can get away with to reward their customers for savings. So saying that savings rates are still not getting to where they should be, really telling savers that they do need to shop around for the best rate, to think about locking their money up, but being highly critical of the way that they have um, looked after their customers we know that banks have been under pressure to to make sure that they help people with mortgages that have gone on to a higher interest rate and now they're struggling. So they are offering things like longer terms um, and, you know, a, a, a interest only payments for a certain period of time. But we have also got a situation where lots of people are looking at the savings rate now, which are higher than they've been for a long time and thinking that, well, you know, I'm a bit nervous of investing my money in the stock market, particularly when we've had a month like the one that we've just had and deciding to stick their money in the bank, but still not getting the rate of return for that investment that MPs say that they should be. So I think 
there'll continue to be an awful lot of pressure on the banks, which I think is is part and parcel of, of why investors are sort of looking at them differently, looking at them um, in less favourable terms. But as you say, I mean, the, the flip side of that is lending and mortgage approval numbers are down. So uh, lenders last month approved the lowest number of mortgages since January. This is according to figures from the Bank of England. So it was just over 43,000 home loans were signed off in September. This is the third month that they have gone down. I mean, I, I don't think there's any real surprise here because people are putting off buying houses at the moment. They're, they're waiting to see what happens. They're thinking about the cost of living situation and they're looking at struggling perhaps to put together a deposit because rental costs are so high. And then they're looking at how much they're going to be paying for their mortgage and deciding that they just can't do it at the moment. But you also had some remortgaging costs, which fell to um, just over 20,000, which is the lowest total since January 1999. And again, I wonder whether those approval numbers are the fact that people are deciding that they're going to wait and see, that they're not going to go for another fix. They're going to just go onto the standard variable, just hoping that they will get a lower rate. They'll suffer pain for a few months and then rates will start to come down. And when they start to come down, if inflation starts to come down, the expectation is that banks might then start offering cheaper deals and then they can make the decision to fix. But it is still incredibly volatile and people really, I think at the moment, are are struggling and we're seeing it in the construction sector and we're seeing it, you know, in the likes of estate agents as well. That's interesting because I I was going for a walk at the weekend and I thought, oh, there's loads of houses for sale where I live, way, way more than normal. I wonder whether people are sort of thinking, okay, well, we perhaps we've put off wanting to move for the last six months, 12 months. Maybe, maybe now is the time to to take that gamble, to take that bet that perhaps people are going to be more interested in, um, you know, like you say, stomaching uh, you know, a rate for short term in the hope that the mortgage affordability will be uh, will, will change soon. But, um, I think you've also got the situation, Dan, where people are thinking ahead to their mortgage coming up for a renewal, thinking about how much those repayments are going to be and deciding that they can't afford them and therefore deciding that they need to put their home on the market to downsize in order to be able to deal with those increased costs over the next couple of years. So I think there's probably quite a bit in there as well. I mean, it's definitely not just um, you know, consumers who are thinking about can they cope with servicing their debts and you know, on a sort of broader basis. We've had some figures out on corporate insolvencies showing just the level of um, stress amongst businesses. Um, so, I mean, what, what's the sort of the headline figures that you've seen, Danny, there? Yeah, they've hit the highest level since the financial crisis. Um, so in the nine months to September, more than 18,000 businesses entered insolvency. This is according to official insolvency service figures. And this, as you say, is the highest number for this period 
um, for any year since 2009 and 13% higher than the first nine months of 2022. Companies are struggling in exactly the same way as households are. And it's interesting because when you look at those in critical distress, um, among the, the sector's worst hit, we were just talking about them, construction and um, estate agents really struggling because of the situation that we are in at the moment. And also the number of hospitality businesses going out of business as well. It's kind of a perfect storm for a lot of these companies. First of all, following the financial crash, we had incredibly low borrowing costs. And there were a number of companies that are called zombie companies, I think, that have managed just to keep ticking on because borrowing costs have been so low. Now borrowing costs have gone up. They are just finding it absolutely impossible. And at the same time, even viable businesses, really vibrant businesses are struggling because at the same time as increased borrowing costs. So, you know, if if you have to um, maybe want to expand, the likelihood is you're not going to be able to do that at the moment. And you've also got other costs that have gone up as well. So I'm thinking of labor, I'm thinking of energy. And at the same time, you have a consumer who is struggling, who is thinking about what they spend and and habits have changed. And we've seen a number of of big names disappear. I'm thinking of Wilco, also um, SafeStyle, the double glazing company has gone into administration. And as habits changed, it does impact the business case of some of these businesses and point in case, not just in the UK, but we work is struggling. Yeah, I mean, there's, there is some talk as we record this podcast that it may file for bankruptcy, potentially as early as next week. So um, if you you, know, you need to step back a few years, I mean, the, the, the firm was sort of seen as the, the, the sort of the, the future of the office. But then along came, um, you know, a, a sort of a disastrous attempt in 2019 to try and sell shares to the public. Its co-founder left. And then, of course, the pandemic came and then, you know, corporate working practices have changed. So there's now more hybrid working. So um, it, it's it's basically come up across a load of headwinds. Um, and now it's told the US financial regulator it's done an agreement with some creditors to temporarily postpone payments for some of its debt. Of course, that triggered a massive fall in its share price. Um, and then you know, just look at the scale of its decline. If you go back to its height in early 2019, the business was roughly worth about $47 billion. Well, since it's been on the stock market, its valuation has fallen by 98% in just the last year here. So it's, yeah, this is basically on the brink of, you know, we work, um, you know, will it, will it be around in a year's time? Who, who knows, really? In some ways, you would think that this would be the perfect opportunity for this kind of company like WeWork, because as other companies downsize the amount of office space they have because of hybrid working, there there is a market there for them to grab hold of. But also, you know, we go back to talking about debt servicing costs. They expanded so fast and they are now in so many countries and 
they will have leases which they took out at a time when office space was at a premium and now maybe they're paying more than they would be if they were looking at taking that office space right now. So, yeah, it's going to be um, an interesting one to watch. Um, Let's um, focus in on Europe now because it's developed a reputation for being one of the most unloved territories in the world for stocks and shares. However, those ignoring the region could be missing out, judging by the performance of certain funds. Among the names doing well is Invesco European Focus. And we're pleased to have an interview with manager James Rutland on the podcast this week. Dan recently caught up with James to talk about all things Europe. Let's hear what he had to say. So, James, thanks ever so much for joining us. And I think the, the first question I would have for you is that Europe has kind of long lived in the shadow of the US in terms of popularity with investors. I think most people would probably argue that they could find better growth opportunities in the US than Europe. But why is it that Europe is overlooked like this? And and actually, is it a place where you can find sort of decent growth companies? What you you say is certainly true if we think back over the last decade. Um, The US has definitely outperformed Europe. And I think there's a couple of reasons for that. Firstly, you have the FANG stocks in the US, so the Facebooks and Amazons and such like. But also the US hasn't had to deal with the negatives of war and energy crisis, as well as I think what is perceived as a somewhat more challenged political backdrop uh, as we have in Europe. Now, that's not to say there haven't been interesting growth companies in Europe over that period. However, I think the best way to answer your question is to think about what lies ahead, because I think that's where we as investors can look to make returns over time. And I think what's important to, to realize today is that the next investment cycle, in my opinion, looks very different to the last investment cycle. And I think there's three key reasons for that, which we should, we should bear in mind. Firstly, we have long lived with very, very low or negative interest rates. And that has decisively shifted to positive interest rates. And, and I can't emphasize enough just how big an impact that should have on the way investors should position portfolios. The second thing is, and I think we can all observe it, is a big change in government policy. Again, we've moved decisively away from austerity. We're now seeing government begin to invest, um, invest once again. And then finally, uh, and this is a bit more esoteric, but it's definitely something which is front and center at the moment, but just the, the, the backdrop with geopolitics and the end of globalization, people wanting to consolidate manufacturing on domestic shores, I think means this cycle is very different. And for me, these conditions underpin a cycle in which Europe will perform much better relative to the US. And in fact, you're already beginning to see that because growth um, in Europe is now catching up with the US. So whereas there was a big growth premium previously, that's now shrunk. And if you look at the economic data from the Eurozone, certainly recently, it's not been great. I I guess you could argue the outlook is, is, is not exactly robust. So... Does that sort of explain why you've got uh, what some might call steady-as-you-go type businesses in your portfolio, like like Roche and, and the insurance company AXA? So the Invesco European team in prior process, we call quality transition. So very simply, our investment philosophy is that uh, the market struggles to price change accurately. So what we do as a team is look for companies where we can see signs of positive change. And that is the core commonality that links all of our holdings together. So it's true in the case of the steady-as-you-go holdings, as you call them, like Axe and Roche. It's also true of all the other holdings in the portfolio. 
Now, if we just go to the economic backdrop, which I believe is the crux of your, your question, I think as a team, we've actually been reasonably cautious all year. So if we just rewind 12 months, you know, our caution was underpinned by a feeling that the market was being too sanguine about inflation expectations and, and the rate at which interest rates begin to fall again. And now what that meant is that we wanted to have a balanced portfolio in terms of cyclicality. But what was really important was that we wanted to avoid overpaying in certain areas of the market. And sectors such as healthcare, which Roche sits in, and AXA in the insurance sector, screened as those types of businesses. But they also had that very important piece of quality transition, which is really important. Maybe just one final point about the economic uncertainty, because I get that it puts off people from investing. But it's when we reach these points of max uncertainty that generally the best returns are on offer when we see the best risk reward. And, you know, with our process, I think for me, what's most exciting about the current environment is that it's this type of environment in which we see companies pursue change more aggressively, more proactively. And that's where we think as a team, we have an edge and hopefully can build a portfolio that will do well over the next two to three years. It's actually, you know, if you look at the performance of your fund, it's actually been pretty good for for a while. So Invesco European focus is up 25% over the past 12 months. And if you compare that to the sector, so you've got 18% over the same period from the IA Europe ex-UK sector. But over three years, you've returned about 54% versus 21% from the sector. So how have you managed to outperform there? If we rewind to November 2022, the Economist front page was a picture of Europe covered in ice, and the headline was frozen out, how the world is leaving Europe behind. And sentiment towards Europe as a region was very negative, but for a number of reasons. We had war, we had an energy crisis, we had a weak Chinese economy. Now, at that time, we were also beginning to get the first murmurs in the market that inflation wasn't going to be as transitory as many people at home. So the market felt that inflation would come and go like a flash in the pan. We were much more cautious. Now, if we take those two points, so sentiment towards Europe being negative about the economy, and then we've got inflation being more permanent, we can take those two things and distill them into two types of risk we can take as investors. So there's earnings or profit risk, if we think about the economy, and then there's valuation risk, if we think about inflation being more permanent. Now, over the last 12 months, we felt more optimistic on the cycle. We didn't think Europe would be frozen out, as The Economist uh, was trying to point out. But we were more cautious on, on valuation in the market. And that really underpinned the way we positioned the portfolio. So if we think about what supported performance this year, it's been things like the banks, which have been very good as interest rates have began to rise without the economy um, you know, really going into a sharp slowdown. Um, and just avoiding those expensive areas of the market, I think, is really um, us in good stead uh, over the last 12 months. Then if we if we go back over that longer period, you know, I, I really like to think that you know, that quality transition, that stock selection really underpins the way we invest as a team. And that really drives the, the outperformance over a longer period. Um, you know, to be completely fair with you, I think you're cherry picking quite a nice time for us because that's going into that period where the vaccine came out for COVID and, you know, risk assets as a whole did very well coming out of that. Yeah. So, I mean, in terms of sort of valuations, you know, Europe's got this reputation for being uh, a place where you find sort of value stocks because it's got financials and commodities where I guess it's harder to have confidence over future earnings. 
why is it that investors are are, are not that attracted to Europe, um, even though you can get you know stocks on much lower ratings you can find in somewhere like the US? I think what your question really highlights is just a, a broad based, I guess, disdain towards Europe by the investor community. If I look at Europe relative to the US, even at an aggregate level, on you can cut it any way, we're now at a record discount. And I think there is a willingness to engage with Europe because obviously the US has done very well for the past decade and people like to go with what they know. And we've had that political uncertainty, we've had war. There's been lots of reasons for people not to look at Europe. And as I said, you know, earlier on, I think this cycle will be somewhat different. And maybe some of those, you know, value sectors uh, of yesteryear will actually be the secular growth sectors of years to years to come, given some of the investment things we think will be important over the coming years. What what's your sort of feeling about interest rates in Europe? Do you think that, that, that they might have peaked now? And I guess is that the, a point that you might might want to look at a, a different type of stock? That could benefit from um, sort of a rebound if we, if we get sort of this shift in central bank policy. Again, it's a great question. I think it, you know that it really picks on what I think is the tension um, in the market at the moment. As I said at the start of the year, we felt people were much too sanguine. You know, if you looked at inflation expectations, they look you know a lot like Everest. I think now people have come to this gradual realization that it's a bit more like Table Mountain, so rates will be higher for longer. And I, you know, I feel much more comfortable with where the market is or the bond market is on average in terms of where rate expectations are. Um, we have looked at some of the more uh, highly rated or formerly more highly rated stocks uh, in the market. And for me, they're not quite there yet. I still think there's some way to go through this adjustment process, you know, the world getting used to 4%, uh, 4% rates. And again, you know, I think a lot of people expect us to go back to you know very low or zero interest rates in the near future. That that is not our view as a team, and therefore I think we're unlikely to get that same tailwind for some of these growthier sectors as we had in the last decade. And I think that means we need what we need to focus on as a team, as investors, is looking for stock-specific output. And I think that's where you'll see the majority of your returns. James Rutland there from Invesco. Right, that's your lockdown. Yeah, well, next week, our interview will be looking at India. Um, We're also going to reflect on those interest rate decisions. So until then, thank you very much for listening and we'll catch you next time. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.